Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. This is part two of a pair of special episodes of the show brought to you from Wood Mackenzie's Hydrogen Conference at the Hilton London Tower Bridge. You don't have to listen to part one first, to be honest. There aren't any massive plot spoilers, but if you do go back, you can hear some great interviews with Rick Butel from Bloom Energy and Inez Kraft from the German electrolyzer company Sunfire, among others. On this episode, we have Will Lockhead, who's the Deputy Director and Head of Hydrogen Production and Storage Business Models at the UK Government's Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. Akshay Bardwaj, who works on ammonia at the fertilizer and chemicals company OCI Global. Laura Cross from the International Fertilizer Association, whose members take a close interest in what's happening to hydrogen. And David Burns of Linda, the leading industrial gas and engineering company. Here's Will Lockhead from the UK Government on the panel session titled Getting to FID, Incentivising Project Development and Investment. We have recently published the Low Carbon Hydrogen Agreement from the UK government, which is the contractual form of the hydrogen production business model. And we are busy working with potential projects to allocate contracts to progress the UK government's 10 gigawatt hydrogen production ambition by 2030. When we set out working on a hydrogen production business model, we took account of developments in renewable electricity, so the contract for different scheme there, but also other potential markets. I think from our perspective, hydrogen was very different because A, there was no benchmark price for hydrogen, so we don't know exactly how much people are willing to sell it at and also willing to buy it at. So that was a specific challenge, as well as understanding there are specific risks between the public sector and private sector that need to be agreed and, and allocated to ensure that projects get over the line and to meet government net zero ambitions. And after that session, he joined me for an interview. Will, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks a lot for inviting me. You've just come off stage recently, right? You were on a panel session earlier on today. What were you talking about there? So we were talking largely around how you achieve final investment decisions for, I guess, low carbon hydrogen production projects, both in UK, Europe and the United States. What are the right conditions to getting projects into that sort of final investment decision and into construction and ultimately operation? So really good session where we talked about the role of government, role of private sector, role of investment community to bring that forward, really. Now, the UK government's recently published an update on its hydrogen strategy, and I think you're going to do another one around the end of the year. Talk a little bit about the way you're thinking about progress on hydrogen at the moment. I mean, how are things going? What more needs to be done, do you think? So a really good question. I guess over the last two years, since we first published our hydrogen strategy back in the summer of 2021, we've been steadily progressing the commercial frameworks, the regulatory frameworks, and also matching sort of supply and demand. So we're now in a place where we have recently published our design of the hydrogen production business model to bring forward investment into hydrogen production projects. And then alongside that, we've also been developing the low carbon hydrogen standard, which essentially defines what a low carbon hydrogen project needs to achieve to get the subsidy support. We're also now in negotiations with a number of hydrogen projects with the aim of awarding those first hydrogen production business model contracts from the end of this year. And your crucial target for development of low-carbon hydrogen, you've got a target for 2030, right? What is that? It's up to 10 gigawatt of hydrogen capacity, of which at least half needs to come from electrolytic sources. Right. And the rest then could be... So essentially, so that's basically half green in the parlance of these things yeah. and half or up to half blue. Exactly. From, right. Exactly. So there's a combination of different allocations to support that. So for electrolytic or non-CCOS, we have what's called the hydrogen allocation round. So we're in our first hydrogen allocation round at the moment, where we've shortlisted 17 electrolytic projects to enter into negotiations with the department. And we hope to complete that by the end of the year. And then on CCUS, we have the wider CCUS cluster sequencing program, where we're negotiating with two CCUS-enabled hydrogen projects, one in Teesside and one in the Northwest. And to be clear, then, that's a production target. So that's talking about supply of that low-carbon hydrogen. It is, but an important requirement as we undertake the due diligence and bilateral negotiations with every single one of those projects, we check their off-takers. So we do due diligence on their sort of off-take demand because an important component of our subsidy support is producers only get paid if they actually sell the hydrogen to off-takers. So where is the offtake in the UK going to be then? Where are people going to be using low-carbon hydrogen? So at the moment, there's a strong demand in industry. So in glass, chemicals, 
think we're starting to see increasing interest in power, potentially blending initially before 100% conversion, and also in transport, particularly as a, an alternative to diesel. So to what extent then, I mean, you talk about strong demand in industry, is this from industries that are currently using hydrogen and are going to switch over to using low carbon hydrogen, or is this from new uses? I mean, as you say, obviously power then would be a completely new use. It's largely new. So it's largely converting from using natural gas, fuel switching to using hydrogen. So say in Scotland, we're seeing some distilleries, for example, interested in in hydrogen, using it as an alternative source. And then across the UK, paper mills, et cetera. And that's largely because the way we've constructed the hydrogen production business model is the producer is allowed to sell at the natural gas price floor. And so there's an inbuilt incentive for an off-taker to take that because they're not then exposed to the carbon price. And is the technology all in place for that to happen then? I mean, 2030 feels very close now. Are you confident that that off-take is actually going to be there as people hope it will be? I think so. I think what we're starting to see is larger projects coming forward with large offtake demand. I still think there's a lot that needs to happen between now and 2030 to achieve that. So, for example, I think we're increasingly looking at how you build out hydrogen transport and storage infrastructure to help grow that market and link producers with more markets, really. Do you think the UK is going to be much of an import market also for low carbon hydrogen and derivatives? There's been a lot of talk at this conference about international trade, particularly in ammonia, probably, which seems like it's most people's favoured solution for transport of low carbon hydrogen derivatives. What do you think? Is a lot of that going to be sold in the UK? I don't know, to be frank. I think there's a lot more that needs to be worked through in terms of the economics. I think from a, from a UK perspective, we're very keen to grow that UK domestic market. And that's partly because of the economic opportunities that provides us, but also energy security. Particularly if you look at electrolytic, we have a lot of offshore wind, which are getting bigger and bigger. So how do you make sure you use that sort of curtailed electricity effectively as well? And so conversely, could the UK also become an exporter of hydrogen and derivatives? And I think we're starting to see some of that interest between, say, Scottish projects, large offshore wind, electrolyzers, potentially exporting hydrogen to, say, Germany or, or elsewhere in Europe as well. I think, again, that's something we're keen to explore. You mentioned transport. I mean, obviously, the other way that hydrogen gets transported then is by pipeline. Lots of technical challenges involved in hydrogen pipelines because of issues like embrittlement of steel, potential for leakage and so on. How close do you think we are to having solutions for those? And do you think we are going to see actually hydrogen pipelines crossing the UK? I certainly think that it's likely to happen and likely to happen soon. I think we're already starting to see some viable proposals for that, be it national grid with their sort of project union, hydrogen backbone proposals, but also regionally with, say, in the Northwest, we're seeing uh, Cade put forward a proposal around a hydrogen regional network and so on linked to storage and producers and, and off-takers. So the technologies there or thereabouts, you think, are there other obstacles that need to be dealt with? I mean, are there regulatory issues or other so kind I think of there issues? are regulatory issues. and Public confidence? Public confidence is probably always, you know, I think we need to ensure you get the public support and backing. I think that's important. I think there's also, in terms of the commercial frameworks, they're lagging behind production. So that's why we've committed to producing new hydrogen transport and storage business models by 2025 to try and play catch up in terms of that. And what about beyond 2030 then? So I say a lot of focus then on that 2030 goal. The UK is going to get to net zero by 2050, which is the government's commitment. Presumably, hydrogen is going to have to play a significantly larger role in the country's energy system. I mean, do you think that's right? And are there also things you're doing now to kind of lay the foundations for that potentially much bigger low-carbon hydrogen industry beyond 2030? Yeah, I think you're right. I think particularly when we move to net zero targets, that sort of really underpinned hydrogen's role going forward. And I think the 2020s is about sort of setting the groundwork, essentially, to enable that sort of scale up going forward. So I think, you know, we're at the moment sort of setting out the right commercial frameworks to start that initial deployment, test the commercials, test the off-takers and, and, and so on, so that you can then move and accelerate to bigger scale, more areas of the economy to ensure that we stay on track to meeting net zero by 2050. And uh, what have you made of the conference then? I, mean, I know you've been talking to lots of people, kind of a lot of mingling going on in, in the corridors and the coffee breaks and so on. 
What are you picking up in terms of the mood of the industry and the way people are feeling about the outlook for hydrogen now? The conference is great. I mean, in terms of the different number of people from different areas, I think has been great. So it's been speaking to sort of investors, but also project developers, off takers and so on. So I think it's it's a really good sort of mix and also not just from the UK. So it's quite good to hear, you know, what's going on in the States, what's going on here across mainland Europe as well. So I'd say there's a lot of sort of buzz around hydrogen, both in the conference, but also elsewhere. I think where the challenge is, is actually making it happen now. And I think there's quite a lot of impatience around getting hydrogen up and running and going. And I think that's going to be a real test over the next sort of 12 to 24 months to actually turn these projects into construction and operations, really. Well, Lockett, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Another panel session covered the topic of low carbon ammonia. Today, the great majority of the ammonia produced goes into making fertiliser, but in the future, there could be a much, much larger market for low-carbon ammonia for other uses, including power generation and industrial processes. To discuss that potential, I talked to Akshay Bardwaj of OCI Global, which is a leading producer of ammonia. So it's a pleasure to welcome Akshay Bardwaj, who is the Head of Commercial Business Development for Global Ammonia at OCI Global. Akshay, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. It's really a privilege for me to share my thoughts and and look forward to discussion. We had a great panel just now and look forward to continue from that paradigm. Yes, thanks. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that panel then. So you were on there talking about ammonia and about the potential for low-carbon ammonia in the future. Do you want to just give us a bit of a flavor of that? What were you talking about there? you see from a company perspective as OCI Global, we are the third largest ammonia producer globally. I mean, as we speak today, we have 7 million tons of ammonia production. Of course, it's on the gray side, so it's conventional ammonia, so it's gray ammonia, all of it. But 7 million tons is a substantial, we're in, you know, if you see the current traded market is only 20 million tons. And out of 7 million tons, we consume internally or for captive demand is 5 million tons. And then there's 2 million tons is what we trade in the, in, in the international market. Now, that's our existing business, along with uh, our downstream products, which we derive from ammonia and also methanol and methanol-derived products on the chemical industry and, and other downstream industries, primarily on the industrial chemical side as well. So that's our existing business. But now, as the industry and the, as the world is moving towards low-carbon ammonia or sustainable ammonia, that's how we call it. As OCI, we are assuming the leadership position in, within that space as well. As of today, we have an announced portfolio of 2.3 million tons per annum of sustainable ammonia, which comprises of blue ammonia, green ammonia, and also bioammonia. To give an example, we are now currently developing a 1.1 million tons of blue ammonia project, which is the world's most advanced large-scale commercial project anywhere in the world. And not only has that project been FID'd, we are well on our way on the construction, the completion of that construction, mechanical completion is due to happen this year and within the next six months of the next quarter of the next year. And then we are there for commissioning by 2025, mid of that. So that's a 1.1 million tons of production asset. And where is that project? It's in the US, Texas area. We're calling it the Texas Blue Ammonia Project internally. And, and that's like I said, it's going to be one of the world's biggest. Then we also have green ammonia production under our portfolio. As we speak, currently we have that production in Egypt. We have a 15 megawatt electrolyzer project, which is already producing 9,000 tons per annum of green ammonia. And that project was announced in COP27 last year. And the idea is to scale that up to a 100 megawatt electrolyzer unit by 2025 and 2026. And, and not only these, I mean, there are other projects, 1 million tons again project of blue ammonia in Abu Dhabi, in UAE, plus a smaller project on green ammonia as well in UAE. So we have that larger portfolio. And what's driving these investments then when you're thinking about investing in this? new low-carbon ammonia, which essentially is a product which hasn't existed before, it's just kind of coming onto the market now. What are your motivations for beginning to develop capability here? Yeah, I think it's a function of how the industry itself or the market, larger ammonia market, you know, we have, if you see, we have the conventional uses in fertilizers, which is 80% of the current market of ammonia, which uses ammonia as a, as a fuel for its downstream product utilization. Then we have, out of that, apart from the 80%, we have industrial chemicals as a conventional use, which is, again, going to be there. But then more important than that, you know, as we move forward on the decarbonizing journey, not only from a region perspective, but globally, you have, you know, Far East, you have Asia, which is Europe, and then Americas, you know, everybody is, is looking at ammonia as a decarbonization agent, you know, to fulfill their net zero targets as countries. 
And then individual companies as well, they're looking at decarbonization agents. And ammonia seems to be the only viable solution at the moment, as far as we understand. And there are others as well, but you know, if you see the entire spectrum, then perhaps ammonia is right at the top. And just to add on that point, that why we are focusing so much on the low carbon or sustainable ammonia production is, we see that the world would move from seeing ammonia just as a fuel for the fertilizer end uses to a varied end use spectrum, which includes power, which includes maritime industry decarbonization with, with the whole the shipping industries. Then we are also looking at ammonia as, as a big vector to transport hydrogen, where there is a big demand for hydrogen as a fuel. At the moment, there is no supply systems in place or supply chains in place for hydrogen transportation at scale for larger distances. What is the solution? Perhaps ammonia is one of the most credible solutions we have. So I think the industry is moving to on a broad-based basis, and that's how we see as OCI that we aren't going to be the leaders within that framework. And as you say, ammonia, there's already a well-established international trade, not huge at the moment, but technologically, we know how to do it. The retankers, it can be done, which is not really the case for, say, liquid hydrogen, other forms of transporting hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. So to take an example then, when you talk about the Texas Blue Project, then this is your furthest advanced of your really large-scale projects. What's the market for that going to be? Where is that production going to be sold? As OCI, I mean, we have existing relationships with customers across the globe, you know, and we are going to build further on that, particularly we're targeting some of the end-use regions which already have identified demand for ammonia, for low-carbon ammonia for that matter which includes countries like Japan and South Korea, which are really uh, running fast on that journey to utilize sustainable ammonia at scale. For example, if you see, you know, power generation is one of the biggest examples that we have. And in Japan and South Korea, because of their constraints on the geography and the terrain and all of those things, they need agent or fuel to decarbonize their power systems. I'm just giving power as an example, uh, which is quite big. I mean, to give you a statistic, one gigawatt of a power plant to burn ammonia directly would require 2.7 million tons of ammonia, or for that matter, sustainable ammonia. And if you look at the current market, it's, it's, the traded market is only 20 million tons. So that's the scale that you're looking at. And it answers your previous question as well, that why as OCI we are focusing on that is because to work with these regions and countries on their decarbonization journey, and, and help the industry move forward. Somebody has to take the call. So as OCI, we have the first project at that scale and size, which is coming on stream uh, by 2025. Those are amazing calculations. So just eight gigawatts of power generation already, that would mean doubling the total size of the global traded ammonia market right there. Exactly. So, and that's the scale. And that's only about power sector. If, if you look at some of the other sectors, you know, you talk about maritime. So maritime is an, is an interesting sector that would not only start looking, which is already doing that, you know, the work is happening as you speak on the technology readiness for the engines that would burn ammonia directly. So not only it would be that ammonia would be traded on ships, but in fact, those ships would be fueled by ammonia as its fuel. So, so it's like a whole encompassing market, which is developing very fast. And the potential market is absolutely huge then? Huge, huge. If, if you talk about maritime sector, I think it's with the current policies in place, the fuel EU maritime, which is going to be there in, in the European region, that's going to be a huge driver. I mean, that's one of the examples I'm giving because there are multiple examples, especially on the NU side. You know, we can talk about policies a bit more, but I think some of these policies are really shaping the environment. Yeah. How do the costs stack up? How much more expensive is low-carbon sustainable ammonia compared to conventional ammonia? See, cost is something that is dependent on multiple factors. Like, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example, both for the blue and green side. What do you need for a blue ammonia project? Essentially, you need gas. Gas is the biggest contributor to the overall cost. If you are building a project which is in a gas-rich region, technically speaking, which, which has supplies of gas at scale and at, at relatively lower cost, that would really uh, support a low-cost production of blue ammonia. So that's one example. If you talk about green ammonia, on the flip side, it's about the renewable energy cost, you know, because renewable energy is about 55 to 60 percent of the overall cost or the final cost of the hydrogen, which is known as LCOH, you know, the levelized cost of hydrogen slash LCOA, which is levelized cost of ammonia. So 
you're talking about two big variables, you know, gas on the blue side and or on renewable energy side for, for the green ammonia, which are the major contributors to the overall cost. So if we have a well-defined region in which these attributes are available at scale and at relatively lower cost, that's wherein the difference between, say, a conventional ammonia or gray ammonia and a blue and green ammonia would start to make sense. You know, and that's why the industry is now being divided into two streams. One is on the production side, you know, which are the production hubs. So countries like America, countries like with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been introduced in 2022, which is really supporting establishing the production assets on blue ammonia, green ammonia, with, with its subsidies and incentives that the government has offered. I mean, for example, for a clean ammonia, you can go as much as $3 per kilogram as incentive, which is a huge, massive incentive. Similarly, in, in Europe, now we are looking at uh, subsidy mechanisms like the hydrogen bank, which has just been announced, and then more clarity is opening up on that as well. And countries which are traditionally being importers, like countries like India, you know, they have also announced certain incentives to boost the, not only the local production and local capacities, but also in terms of exports. So India is a traditional importer of ammonia, one of the world's biggest, but now they want to harness their green energy attributes. They want to turn themselves into exporters of low-carbon ammonia. So that's how really the cost difference is being mitigated to some extent. Of course, the policies will play an important part because these products would come at a certain premium. You know, that's the nature of the business. And governments would play a huge role in terms of subsidizing those price differences or price gaps, literally. So what are the remaining obstacles then? As you say, the potential is vast. There's a lot of activity going already, investments being made, projects being worked on that have not yet reached final investment decision, but are getting towards that point. What still needs to happen to make this vision of a large-scale, low-carbon ammonia industry a reality? I just drop on my, my last comment on the previous question that it's an all-encompassing game. It's, it has multiple moving parts. So on one hand, you have governments, which are going to play a very important role in, in this moving this forward. Then you have you need to have production at scale. So producers like us, like OCI, and that's why we have taken the decision to go ahead with our Blue Ammonia project. So you need government policies and incentives on one hand. You need production at scale uh, on the other hand. And then on the demand side, on the end use side, we need to have demand as well, which is linked to to the government policies that, you know, if there are clear policies in place, stable regimes in place in terms of policies, long-term policies, then it's all going to add up. And that's why as OCI, we would urge governments and also end-use industries who are literally sitting on the fence at the moment to come and see, you know, how a low-carbon ammonia sustainable would add value to the businesses and across varied streams. So we are talking about power, we are talking about maritime, we are talking about conventional uses and fertilizers and industrial chemicals. So all of them we would urge, and the production, and it's a chicken and egg, right, at the moment. It's literally chicken and egg that you have producers waiting for the policies to be clear and end users waiting for the policies to be clear because they need the subsidies and incentives to really make sense of the pricing. But I think all of these together, binding together, would really move the market or the industry for ammonia and low-carbon ammonia forward. And we would urge all of them, especially the government, to put in certain policies, which are being done in sporadical manners in Europe, in US, and in Japan and South Korea. They are talking about bringing incentives. So hopefully if that emerges sooner, we would have more clarity on all the aspects together and move the industry forward. Yeah. So where is the technology now in terms of ammonia for power generation? I've heard a lot of talk about it, and certainly countries like Japan, South Korea, very interested in it, both co-firing in coal-fired power plants and also pure ammonia being used for power generation. I've also heard a lot of people express concerns in particular about the nitrogen oxide emissions and saying that there's potentially a big problem there. And essentially, you solve one problem with the carbon dioxide emissions and you create another problem with the nitrogen oxide emissions. How is progress going on addressing that problem? No, I think, again, it's a great question, Ed, uh, and it's something which is very close to our heart as well, that as OCI, of course, we are ammonia producers, sustainable ammonia producers, but we are also in touch and we are in regular contact with technology providers, particularly from Japan and South Korea, and especially in Japan, because Japan has taken a lead. If you remember, you know, last year, there was an announcement about a 20% co-firing in a JERA uh, plant of one gigawatt in Japan, and JERA is the largest utility for power in Japan. So... 
So they are working with IHI on a 20% co-filing on a one gigawatt coal-fired power plant. Currently, as we speak, the pre-commissioning work is happening and then the commissioning would happen of this pilot by 2024. So next year is when the commissioning is taking place. Now, IHI and JERA, of course, are collaborating on that aspect, but IHI as a standalone organization, they've already come up with a two megawatt gas turbine, which is ready to burn ammonia directly. And they're not stopping there. I mean, they are going to commercialize this two megawatt a few years down the line, but it's already available. The technology is available. They're ready to showcase that. They are in partnerships, as we know, and it's public information as well, that they're in partnership with GE. And they're working on a gas turbine for ammonia direct firing up to 400 megawatts, which is a really a, going to be a game changer because if you are talking about multiple megawatt scale of power generation, that's really going to be a game changer. Similarly, um, Mitsubishi uh, Heavy Industries, MHI, they are also working on this direct firing of ammonia into gas turbines. As again, public information, they have a ready-made, or they are working to commercialize 40 to 60 megawatt turbine for direct firing of ammonia, which is hopefully going to be commercialized by 2526 timeframe, and that's, that's something that we have come to know. And then smaller organizations like PSM, which is owned by Hanwha, in the South Korean organization, they are also working on direct firing and retrofitting of existing turbines on the ammonia side. So essentially what we're talking about here is, is within the next one and a half, two years time frame, we would have commercially available turbines or technology, which would, again, perhaps change the whole paradigm of how ammonia is seen. And that's really where the rubber meets the road, that you have the technology on one side, you have the production, and what it needs is basically some government invention on terms of policies that would drive the scale, and then it's a win-win for all. Akshay Bhargaj, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Hank, and thank you for having me again. That potential surge in the low-carbon ammonia market obviously has big implications for the fertiliser industry, and I discussed those implications with Laura Cross. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Laura Cross, who's the Director of Market Intelligence at the International Fertiliser Association. Laura, thanks very much for joining us on the Energy Gang. Thanks for having me. You're going to be talking on a panel session later today, which is great. And I'm really pleased you're able to talk to us today because already in the course of this morning, I feel like I've heard the word fertiliser used about 50 times in the discussion. We've had presentations, panel sessions where a lot of people in the hydrogen business have been talking about markets for hydrogen and where they see the market for low-carbon hydrogen in particular. And a very common thing you'll hear people say is, well, look, the important thing initially is that we target existing uses of hydrogen, that in the longer term there'll be new uses in hydrogen for power generation, industrial processes, heavy-duty transport, whatever it might be. But the first thing we need to do is take all the high-carbon hydrogen that's going into the economy and we need to turn that into low-carbon hydrogen. And fertiliser is obviously a very important part of that. The fertiliser industry is a very important user of hydrogen, in particular through ammonia. So question, how do you see that in the fertiliser business? When you hear these people say, this is going to be great, this is a really important market for us, we're going to sell loads of low-carbon hydrogen to make fertiliser... Are they right to think that? Is there a big potential market there? And what are the prospects and what is it going to take in order to decarbonize that industry? Yeah, it's a question we're getting a lot. What we're seeing is two trends taking place at the same time. On the one hand, we are seeing the existing production base of ammonia for fertilizers and other end uses. We're seeing that being decarbonized. On the one hand, through green ammonia through renewable energy, but also on the blue ammonia side through carbon capture and storage. And the pace of that depends on where you are in the world. It depends on the incentives, the subsidies, also the strategy of companies as a whole and what they need to provide for their shareholders. But I also think we're seeing at the same time, these new end use markets pick up quite quickly. And in a way, the pace of that is sometimes faster because the potential size of these new uses of ammonia as an energy carrier for various means, maritime fuel, etc., these are really capturing people's attention. And there's been a huge amount of project activity of ammonia production for those uses specifically. So I would say we're seeing it at the same time, and it depends on where you are, what sort of market you're in. 
But at the moment, those new uses are relatively small, right? I mean, the yes. hydrogen value chain is absolutely dominated by fertiliser, right? At the moment, yes, correct. Fertilisers and downstream processing of ammonia into finished fertilisers is by far the largest use of ammonia. And I think what is, again, what's getting the attention of investors and people involved in the energy value chain is the potential scale. So we're not talking about next three to five years, which incidentally is how long it takes to construct a new ammonia plant. That's sort of the typical time frame for building that. But what we are seeing is projects starting to make steps into the market. And this is, some would say, somewhat of a speculative investment, but that's because the potential scale could be huge. And there is a scenario if ammonia becomes the product of choice for the energy transition, that actually fertilizer could end up becoming the minority part of ammonia consumption. We're talking, you know, tenfold in terms of volume. Let's take an example if the maritime fuel sector switched completely to ammonia. Now, we don't know for sure that that's going to happen, but if it did, you're talking about a huge amount of ammonia that could be needed for that. And what are the implications of that going to be then? I mean, clearly, ammonia is absolutely vital to all of our lives now because without the ammonia, you don't have the fertilizer. Without the fertilizer, you don't have the food and we can't eat. So are there risks involved in, as you say, trying to kind of diversify the ammonia industry so hugely towards all these new uses? I think what we're seeing, especially at the moment with so much of this project activity, is that there has to be room for both. And especially at the International Fertilizer Association, what we see is that you have companies that are very much focused on the food and agriculture sector. That's really the the main part of their business, if not all of their business. And that will always be a part of it because of the structure of the fertilizer industry, its role that it plays in food security. And by the way, you know, the stat that we often quote is that 50% of the world's population is fed due to the use of fertilizers. And so we're not talking about insignificant numbers here. But I do think that there's space for both. And also there are some complementary aspects to this as well. So typically ammonia is produced in large scale production facilities. And you may be in a very different location to serve the energy market versus serving, let's say, a corn belt farmer in the US. So that's really what we're seeing is the investment is taking place in both parts of the ammonia potential. The big difference is that one is an existing market and one still is developing and there are still lots of question marks and steps about how that develops and when. But going back to that existing market, which is currently a very significant source of carbon dioxide emissions, how do you decarbonize that then? As you say, these two processes are going on, the old uses and the new uses developing together. What does it take to get the current users of hydrogen and ammonia in the fertilizer industry to switch fully over to using low carbon hydrogen? It's a great question. I think there's there's two main things here. The first is that we are already seeing many producers look at offsetting or switching their source of production on site. So there are many fertilizer producers that are starting pilot plants on their existing production facilities testing what the operational aspect of that looks like. Also the cost, which is a really big issue. At the moment, it's much higher cost to produce ammonia in most parts of the world from renewable energy versus natural gas, which is the major feedstock for most production. So what we're seeing is in some cases, dual feedstocks being tested, but then we're also seeing fertilizer producers actually start to gear up other production assets for these new ammonia uses. So that's why I say we see both things happening in parallel, because there will be parts of the world like Russia, like the Middle East, where natural gas is continued to be produced and will remain part of of their energy intensive industries in the short and medium term. So again, it's a combination of the two, but we're seeing that happen. We're seeing the investment in green ammonia in quite a lot of regions around the world. And blue ammonia in places like the US has been a huge amount of project activity in the last year since the IRA was was announced. 
You mentioned cost. The agriculture industry, which is, of course, the market for fertilizer, typically very, very price sensitive. Farmers really care about how much they have to pay for their supplies. Often their margins are very slim. Cost of inputs can make a colossal difference to whether they're able to stay in business or not. How do you then develop a market for fertilizer that is going to be prepared to pay the higher cost of these low carbon products? Absolutely. That's what is progressing and companies in the industry are finding ways to support farmers to reduce the carbon footprint of of their fertilizer. What I would say in today's market is that because of that price sensitive nature that you talked about, at the moment, there isn't an established premium for a low carbon fertilizer. And some of that comes from consumer behavior. For any one of us going to the supermarket, buying our regular food, we might like the idea of paying extra to be aware of your sustainability credentials and knowing that it's low carbon. But actually, if you look at the economic environment around the world today, that's actually not the driving factor for a lot of people. So it will definitely come because that's the entire way that the investment, both in food, agriculture and energy is going. But today it's not quite there. So a lot of it comes from shareholder pressure on fertilizer producers, the need to have ESG compliance, show that we are doing the right thing as an industry. But there's a little bit further to go, I would say, before the farmer can see that benefit and actually quantify that benefit and have a premium product that is sold at the end. And also, presumably, policy is going to have a critical role. When you look at the policy landscape around the world, are there particular countries and economies that are getting it right in terms of setting the right incentives to get the fertilizer industry decarbonized? I would say that we see most governments around the world kind of fall into one of two camps. You've either got the carrot or the stick, and you've either got companies being told you have to do something, you have to comply with a regulation. And that can have some holes sometimes if there's not a clear pathway for that. Or you see incentives being put in place. And that's where the US is a really great example where the Inflation Reduction Act has effectively made it more cost effective for an ammonia producer to invest in a blue ammonia facility than it is in a conventional natural gas-based facility. And there aren't many other examples around the world where that is the case. And we've seen the project announcements follow that. So that's a really clear example, I think, of where people are incentivized to, to get behind this. There are other parts of the world where the policy environment is still going in the right direction, but there maybe isn't that same pathway that's been set out for, for companies. Given that patchwork of different policy regimes around the world for low-carbon hydrogen and ammonia, what's that going to mean for international trade, do you think? Are we going to see, and of course it's not just the policy regimes being different, it's also natural endowments, it's how much sunshine you've got, how much wind you've got, whether you're going to be able to generate lots of low-cost renewable electricity to make green hydrogen and green ammonia. Is that going to mean we're going to see much more of an international trade develop, do you think? Are we going to see a lot more low-carbon ammonia being shipped around the world and therefore creating new centres for low-carbon fertilisers as well around the world? Absolutely. And sometimes people don't necessarily realise that there is already an established traded market for ammonia. About 20 million tonnes is shipped around the world. And quite often from interesting locations to you know traveling quite long distances to the buyers so that's already there on the one hand and we are already seeing the type of countries that are really leaning into ammonia as a low carbon fuel japan is a great example we are seeing ammonia producers signing up to ship low carbon ammonia at the moment it's typically blue because of that cost structure again already shipping it to a market like japan where it is then cracked back into hydrogen for power generation. So we're seeing examples of that happen. Something we don't have an answer to yet, but I think is really interesting, is that in theory, a molecule of ammonia is a molecule of ammonia. And maybe there are some efficiencies that can be introduced, whether it's through some sort of carbon trading or a mechanism that would 
prevent a trade route from the US Gulf all the way to Japan if that's not the most efficient one in terms of shipping. So that's yet to be seen. That will develop over time. But those trade routes are happening. We're seeing that the Middle East as well is sending shipments to those markets that are first movers in ammonia. So it's very much on the way in that sense. Laura Cross, thanks very much indeed. Enjoy the rest of your day and have a great panel session. Thanks very much. And finally, the last session of the day covered the connections between hydrogen and carbon capture. Low-carbon hydrogen is often talked about as coming in two main colours. There's green hydrogen, which is made from the electrolysis of water, and there's blue hydrogen, which is made from natural gas, with the carbon emissions captured. I talked to David Burns of Linda, the industrial gas and engineering company, about some of the issues that are raised when governments and users choose between those two pathways. It's a pleasure to be joined by David Burns, who is the Vice President of Clean Energy at Linda, who's going to be speaking on a panel later on today about hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. So first question to you, I guess, is why are you on that panel and what are you going to be talking about? Where is it that carbon capture and low carbon hydrogen fit together? Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You know, from Lindy's perspective, when we look at hydrogen and, and clean energy, we tend to be colorblind. We're not looking at green, blue, orange, etc. So we see carbon capture being a critical part of producing clean hydrogen, in this case, conventionally called blue hydrogen. So we're looking at carbon capture as a means to reduce the carbon intensity of conventional gray hydrogen, if you like, get it down to three or two kilograms per kilogram. That's kind of the, the scope we're looking at. And uh, carbon capture is a critical part of that, coupled, of course, with the sequestration piece. So for Lindy, carbon capture, a critical part of our kind of clean energy program going forward. And you're involved in quite a few projects to do exactly that around the world, right? Yes, that's right. So, you know, you may have seen that in Texas, in Beaumont, we're building a large uh, blue hydrogen project to supply, in that case, hydrogen to OCI. They'll be making ammonia for export. In the Middle East, we're working with our partner, global partner, in that case, SLB, and Aramco to put in place a very large carbon capture project, 9 million tonnes in the first phase, growing to 54 million tonnes over several phases. And so that's going to be coming to FID in the next few months, hopefully. And then um, Dow announced um, several months ago they were going to work with us. They selected us to work with decarbonizing their assets up in Alberta, in that case, fuel switching, you know, taking natural gas, converting it to hydrogen, capturing the CO2, using the hydrogen, in that case, in the furnaces and their ethylene crackers. So a lot of large projects going forward involving conventionally blue hydrogen, but involving carbon capture. We have a lot of expertise, a lot of history with carbon capture. We're also working with partners on the subsurface side because we recognize we're not a subsurface expert. So whether it's SLB, you know, our global partners, or in the case of Texas, working with Exxon, they're going to be our TNS partner in that case. Another project we're looking at in the Texas City area where we uh, announced we're working with BP and they're doing some appraisal wells right now. So a big part of our, our clean energy program. And when you think about low carbon hydrogen, we've been seeing some presentations at this conference earlier today making the point that... Blue hydrogen, made from natural gas with carbon capture, is currently significantly cheaper than green hydrogen made from electrolysis of water using renewable energy. And it looks likely to retain that cost advantage for some time to come. I mean, I think the estimates are, roughly speaking, that green hydrogen is about three times the cost of blue hydrogen as we stand right now. Obviously, it varies a lot different parts of the world and so on. But as a broad statement of a global average, that seems to be about right. So does that mean that really blue hydrogen has a massive competitive advantage? As you look at these emerging markets for low carbon hydrogen, is it going to be blue that really kind of gets in there as the low cost solution? Absolutely. I think what you also have to look at is blue hydrogen can be done at scale today. It's not a new technology. It's just adapting old technologies for a different purpose, in this case, producing, say, blue hydrogen. And you can do that at scale, and you do that places like U.S. Gulf Coast. You have low-cost gas, good access to sequestration, and you get the benefit of the IRA in terms of the 45Q sequestration credit. All that comes together to make blue is a little bit of a premium to gray, but, you know, it's really quite close. You know, when you look at green, you know, three may be, it depends where you are and what kind of policy, et cetera, what's the power cost, et cetera. But yeah, green is certainly more expensive than blue today, maybe more than three, maybe four or five times as much. 
One of the reasons is scale. The ability to do green projects at scale, build electrolyzers at scale, just not there today. I mean, it will build over time, but it's in a way, it's a nascent technology. Also very much dependent on the power cost. You know, that's a power costs are high end, so that tends to bleed through into the cost of uh, green hydrogen. Green hydrogen, two thirds or more of the cost is going to be power related. So that's the challenge you have. But the key thing is blue is you can do that today at scale. We're doing that at scale. In the case of the project we're doing with OCI, for their 3,000 ton plus ammonia project, compared to a green project, you know, we're doing in Niagara Falls, 35 megawatt electrolyzer project in Niagara Falls, something like a factor of 20 to 1 difference in scale. We would not be able to build a project today. I don't think anybody can build a project today to provide that kind of green hydrogen quantities at a competitive price or competitive cost, I should say. So the really important question, though, about blue hydrogen is, is it really clean? Yes. And when people say, if you look at how much carbon dioxide actually gets captured from the process of producing blue Mm -hmm. hydrogen, the emissions are still significant. Then if you add in emissions down the value chain for natural gas, if you're thinking about leaks from pipelines, processing facilities and so on that contribute to the carbon footprint of natural gas overall, Mm -hmm. people would say, add all that up, it's still actually pretty significant and certainly significantly higher than it is for green hydrogen. Do you think that's fair? It's certainly higher than green, uh, depending on, you know, if you're using full renewable energy, full renewable power as your source of electricity, then yeah, obviously green is very low carbon footprint. But you look at blue and, you know, we can capture 95% plus of the CO2 associated with that today. Certainly when you, you know, if you're building a new blue project today, you probably use autothermal reforming. You're capturing CO2 um, at pressure, good concentration. You can do 95% plus recovery. Above that is really diminishing returns when you start looking at carbon intensity. So what you have to look at, though, is then the whole value chain associated with the natural gas all the way back to the well. You're really looking to use natural gas, which has got associated with low emissions, Um, maybe an oxymoron, but low carbon gas, I guess, is what you're looking for. So you have to look along the whole value chain until you take custody of the gas and then convert it to hydrogen to make sure the emissions associated with that. And in that way, you can get down, you know, green is, I think you have to be below 0.45 kilograms per kilogram. That is a typical number in the IRA, or the PTC in the IRA is 0.45 is green. Blue is still debatable, but probably three to two to three is kind of the target you're looking for on a carbon intensity basis. Right. And that would compare to conventional hydrogen? Conventional hydrogen, grey hydrogen with a well-run reformer, you know, nine and a half, ten kilograms per kilogram. So a significant reduction, 80% plus. Now, if you're comparing this with, you know, coal gasification or something like that, it's order of magnitude, well, not an order of magnitude, maybe instead of 15 or 20 kilograms per kilogram, you're looking at 10 for grey from taking hydrogen conventionally is put through a steam, what's called a steam methane reformer to produce hydrogen. That's 90% 90% plus of the hydrogen produced in the US today is produced that way. In the future, you know, while you can retrofit SMRs to capture CO2, we're looking at some of those in our fleet. We're also looking at new projects like the one for OCI, like the one for Dow in Canada, which will be based on autothermal reforming. And that seems to provide the best combination of uh, high capture with low cost as well. And you cited a figure there of you're saying 95% of the carbon dioxide emissions from the process of creating the hydrogen can be captured. I mean, you're saying, is this kind of what could be captured in theory, or is this what people are actually able to demonstrate is being captured? That's demonstrable, and you can do more than that. I mean, the processes today, you know, we, we run an autothermal reformer to produce carbon monoxide and hydrogen, say, for from a chemical customer. In that case, we have to take out the CO2 before it's, uh, the CO goes through a liquefier. You know, we're getting down to PPM levels of CO2, so 99 plus percent recovery. So the technology's there to really take out all the CO2 if you wanted to. It's just these you know, diminishing returns when you're looking at from a carbon intensity point of view. But blue hydrogen produced in a new ATR or with a retrofit, you can get down to you know, 80, 90% plus lower carbon intensity is an equivalent grey product today. So when you think about it, taking a step back and to think about the overall picture of moving towards net zero, trying to decarbonise the energy system, as you've been describing, there's a pretty interesting sort of balance here in that there is, you have blue hydrogen, which is 
capable of being scaled and is significantly lower cost against green hydrogen, which at the moment is significantly higher cost and is harder to scale and certainly smaller scale in terms of, of the projects largely that are being developed at the moment. But then you have significantly higher emissions remaining yeah. for blue hydrogen. How do you think people should kind of weigh up those two options then? I mean, if yeah. we're really serious about getting to net zero emissions over the space of the next 30 years or so, which is what apparently we have to do in order to reach the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, would it be better, in fact, actually to focus on just trying to scale up green hydrogen and to bring the cost down and to address the problems that that technology has got rather than putting so many eggs in the basket of blue hydrogen? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's an element of, you know, the uh, making the perfect being the enemy the good here, right? I mean, really what you have to look at is what can you do in the interim until we, we have green hydrogen at scale? Look at the benefits we can have from carbon capture today, and we can do that with blue. You know, we shouldn't put blue on one side and say, let's just focus on green because there's still the you know, development and scale up required between, you know, in the next five to 10 years, really, before we're at scale. So I think we really are looking at make a significant difference today by using carbon capture to produce blue hydrogen, massive reduction in CO2 emissions by doing that. And you get the benefit of being able to decarbonize those hard to abate sectors, you know, whether it's uh, mobility, whether it's uh, steel, is developing fuel switching those are things you can do today at scale and make a real difference in carbon reduction if we were relying on green to do that we would not be there we, we just couldn't do that so i think there's a lot of benefit everybody's targeting you know carbon reduction the fastest way of doing it in the interim is with through blue hydrogen through carbon capture green hydrogen will come but it's not there yet so we're working both you know we've set ourselves um I think we expect to spend like $50 billion over the next 10 years or so in clean energy. We see certainly in the next you know, 10 years, uh, well, the next five or so years, a lot of that's, well, the majority of that's going to be in blue, but we are investing in green. We are going to be, as we say, agnostic to the color, but right now the market is willing to pay for blue, not necessarily paying for green at the moment, just given the cost differential. You get the benefit of the carbon reduction, so let's make that investment in blue today to make the carbon reductions we're looking for. David Burns, thank you very much. Mm. Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. And that's all for this episode. If you want more on hydrogen and you haven't heard it yet, you can go back and listen to part one of this podcast, which is available now. If you want more from the Wood Mackenzie Conference, then check out the hashtag WMHydrogen on LinkedIn and other social media. And if you want to hear more about Europe's carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is one of the key policy levers for encouraging the use of low-carbon hydrogen, you can watch our LinkedIn Live, which is going to be on the subject on October the 4th at 3.30pm British Summertime. Many thanks to all of our guests for talking to us on these two podcasts. Thanks to our producers, Roxy Abraham khan and Toby Bickens-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it might be. We're on a wide range of social platforms, so please do send us your feedback in any way that works for you. But for now, until next time, goodbye.